This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With a distant light pierces the mist, we look for inspiration from another surreal uh, surreal RPG, Itris B. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss inspirations from other games and media that can inspire your Invisible Sun campaign. This time around, we're going to be talking about another surreal RPG called Itris B and what we might be able to learn from it uh, and bring into Invisible Sun. Um, so I ran across this RPG uh, on the mm, Cypher System Discord chat. I think it was Jeremy Land was talking about how he was going to be reading this a few weeks back, and that piqued my interest and... Uh, so I picked it up uh, off of Drive Through RPG. Uh, you can get a printed copy of it, or you can get just the PDF if you want. We'll have a link in the show notes that will take you to that. Um, but I think there are some interesting things that we might be able to extract from Itris B and talk about, and how that might help us better understand how to run a game for a surreal RPG. Um, whether it's this one or Invisible Sun when it comes out. So this RPG was created by, sorry for the foreign names here, I'm going to probably mispronounce them, Ole Peter Guyver and Martin Bull Gudmundsson. Um, I don't remember exactly where they're from. I knew at one time, I don't, I don't know. They might have been Dutch, but I don't recall. Um but they put this game together, and it looks like the original published date was 2008. Uh, so like 10 years ago, this thing came out. And it's described as a surreal RPG, and it takes place mostly in a city that has the feel of uh, being somewhere in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and in the city itself, things are fairly normal, but as you get further out from the center of the city... Uh, things take on a, a more surreal quality. I'm not going to get too much into the setting here because I'm more interested in talking about the GM tips and tricks that they had uh, for a surreal RPG. Um, but uh, from the bit that I, I read through, I believe that the city of Itris, it's not, I don't think the city's name is Itris. Itris is the name of the goddess who dreamed of the city and then left, possibly abandoned it or disappeared uh, years and years ago. Uh, And that's why uh, we have all this surrealism in this game, and that's what we're going to be talking about here. So I skipped over a whole bunch of the setting stuff, uh, and I said, hey, maybe we'll come back to that later and talk about some of the setting details uh, if we're, you know, looking for other topics until Invisible Sun releases sometime. Uh, we were just talking about that before the show, and we're going to follow up on that and see when that thing is actually going to be dropping. But let's take a look at uh, some of the advice that 
interest B has for running a game, running an RPG uh, with a surreal setting. So, uh, hey, they had a really good uh, definition for surrealism, which I know we talked about that a lot early on in our show run. Um, and I don't remember exactly where we came down on it, but uh, do you remember what our early definition of surrealism was, Scott? I'm not sure we pinned it down to like a single sentence or two, uh, but uh, we emphasized the uh, comparison of uh, hyper-realism combined with impossibility and as a way to draw things that are taken for granted into question. Uh, yes, and here they have a very quick definition for it. Uh, surrealism is French for higher reality. So, okay. Yeah, we got two words. <laughs> so, so that's our, that's all there is to it. And I guess, I guess that's the end of the show. <laughs> but I mean, it makes sense that uh, the, the French would have a very succinct, uh, succinct definition for this word because surrealism started as a French movement, didn't it? Yes. And I think what they're using to define the term is actually just the primitive terms combined to like sir and realism, mm -hmm. uh, meaning higher reality. Uh, so it's literally true that that's a definition, but it is not intended necessarily to be a helpful or full definition. Cool. That makes sense. Um, all right. So um, there was a bunch of stuff in here that I thought was really useful for framing, you know, RPG tips. Um, so basically the, the big takeaway, there are a couple big takeaways, uh, but I'm going to start with uh, the first thing to help foster a surreal environment for your game is this feels like advice for the players and the GM on a, as a whole. Uh, take the incredible for granted. Uh, you want your characters to relate to the strange goings on in your setting without having to ask why things are the way that they are. And they reference uh, a book by Franz Kafka called The Metamorphosis. And mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's another show we should be talking about. Um, <laughs> but basically the uh, summary of The Metamorphosis, Metamorphosis is uh, the main character wakes up and he's turned into a giant beetle. And his concerns are much more mundane. He's not concerned with like how he turned into a giant beetle or why he did. He's more concerned with how is he going to get to work? How is he going to deal with the embarrassment of being a giant beetle? And nobody asks why he's been turned into a giant beetle. Um, they, the, the story is more about how they're having trouble adapting with this metamorphosis. Um, so maybe that's uh, something we should check out for in the future, but it uh, underpins the suggestion that, Hey, take this incredible stuff for granted. This is your world. This is how it works. It's not, it's not bizarre. You're, you're used to it. Um, and it's, this is this sort of uh, attitude is going to come up again later in some of the other tips that they have. And, and there's some uh, slippage here in that uh, metamorphosis is often classified more often classified as, as absurdist rather than surreal. Mm -hmm. Though I think this is useful advice. Uh, I, I think that in particular, this kind of framing uh, an opening scene of metamorphosis where you have someone that you see like, like uncritically accepting that they've been transformed into a, a giant insect. And uh, this, there, you could interpret it in a surreal way to say that if, if you really get into the 
realistic representation of a giant insect and the complications that would create. Uh, and as a way to explore the theme of what does it mean to feel foreign in your own body? Uh, what, what does it mean to feel like you are uh, somehow different from everyone else around you? To what extent is our, our, our connections to other people predicated on the humanness of our bodies? And those exploring those themes through uh, in, in kind of the realistic placement of a very unrealistic element like a, a giant beetle body uh, is in the spirit of surrealism, even if it does is more often classified as absurdist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and absurdist, I'm, I'm assuming that came after surrealism, but built on what they had put together. Well, this uh, Kafka, I believe, would predate surrealism. Predate? Okay. Um, and absurdism, it's hard to really pin it down because it's been around. It's popped up over time, over many, many uh, uh, iterations. Uh, but it is, and it's certainly an influence, uh, but it, it has less of a political uh, bent to it. Like surrealism is, surrealist art in particular had a point. Like it was intended to communicate a revolutionary point about uh, power and relationships and authority in our moral structures and things like that. It was questioning um, the uh, authority, say, of the uh, of the ration, rationality built out of an Enlightenment movement and things like that. The absurdists had some similar arguments uh, that they used absurdity to draw into question issues of, that are thought to be taken for granted by the Enlightenment that are just predicated on reason and didn't require defense. The absurdists would say, well, notice how you know, some of these constructs are themselves absurd, or these constructs can't deal with the absurd. Mm-hmm. And they uh, use that to illustrate the fragility of concepts coming out of the Enlightenment and things like that. So I would say they're fellow travelers, uh, though they're not necessarily the same thing, in part because surrealism was so closely defined with a particular set of visual artists in a particular time and place in France and uh, post-World War One, um, And so it, it, the, I don't think we need to dwell too much on the distinctions between absurdism and surrealism, but I want to warn people that they might find those distinctions if they dig into either of these movements. I don't know. It sounds like we could have a whole show about the differences. Uh, I'm not sure how much more I would have to say on the point. It would require a little more research. Uh, but I will say I both like surrealism and Kafka. So uh, I don't think it would be a waste of time for anyone to read The Metamorphosis. It's it's a fantastic short novel. Well, I'll probably check it out. There's there's going to be a link in the show notes to uh, some information about that book. Um, so I'm going to move on next to uh, their uh, suggestions for finding inspirations into making your uh, your games more surreal. And uh, there, there were a handful of... Uh, options here that they had that we've touched on before. So they they talk about dreams and they talk about automatic writing and drawing. Um, so with dreams, you know, they suggest to hey, keep a notebook by your bed and and write down those dreams and you can train yourself to remember your dreams and be able to recall them in order to write down something that isn't just, you know, total garbage. Uh, automatic writing and drawing. Uh, we we talked about that in episode 14 which is when we had uh, some guy on our show, I forget who it was, but uh, he was a teacher who had a class that collaboratively wrote a play. And the way they started putting that play together was they just all did automatic writing. And then they went through and found pieces in everybody's uh, submissions to find similar themes and uh, symbols. And they put together this, this show that, uh, <laughs> my mom 
her critique was, I don't understand. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, Not an uncommon reaction. (laughs) Not to that specific piece of art, but in terms of surrealist automatic writing art, I mean. Yeah. Um, they, there was another new one here that I hadn't seen before, which was hypnagogic hallucinations. Are you familiar with this? It sounds cool. It sure sounds cool. Um, it's very similar to dreams, but it's, it's that state when you're half asleep and half awake and you're kind of aware of things around you, but you're kind of dreaming at the same time. Uh, so it's it's almost a dream state that you're in, and it, they they had the same suggestion. Hey, have a notebook by your bed and uh, jot this sort of stuff down. Which I don't know how effective that would be because I can't really do anything when I'm half asleep. If I'm hypnagogic in a hypnagogic state, I'm not really able to write things down. Not really, but all of this reminded me of some uh, fun, odd dreams and half dreams that I've heard about, like. Oh, there were hamburgers that were stacking on top of each other, but we couldn't separate them. Or I'm in the freshwater Amazon aquarium at the zoo and all those enormous fish are swimming around by me. Uh, Then there's the classic one where you're half asleep and you get the strange feeling that there's something next to you, but you're never going to be able to see it even if you're looking directly at it. You know, one of those feelings. It's not real, and you know it's not real, but you can't convince yourself that it's fake. Yeah, so it sounds very similar to dreams, uh, and similarly, you you can't necessarily write things down as you're dreaming them, but you probably do have a window of memory when you might be able to recall, and if there's a a gap between what you recall and what you experience, that might just add to the surreal element of it. Yeah, and their their suggestion here for all this stuff was, um, you know, use this to just sort of brainstorm ideas and come up with... uh, I, I guess I would characterize it as flavor um, stuff that you can just pepper into scenes to remind your players that things here are, are strange. They're surreal. And if you have some things that feel a bit off that that's going to help remind them. Uh, so then moving on into like actually keeping stuff surreal, this would be in play. They had a section where they're, talking about a def, uh, a bunch of different ways that you could, you know, pull some of that stuff in, but also, you know, work to keep your session surreal is with uh, free association, uh, strangeness, and a few other things that I'm going to go through. But basically, uh, free association is just that classic, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to say a word and you just say whatever pops into your head. Uh, but in the frame of an RPG and as a GM in particular, this this felt like something that might be able to work as long as you kind of throw out everything that all of your instincts as a GM are going to tell you, you know, not to do. Uh, basically, use those stray thoughts that pop into your head when you're trying to come up with, um, you know, reasonable answers for your players to run with when they're, you know, trying to track something down in in the story that you're going through. For me, I have a lot of thoughts that run through my head that, you know, the initial ones I will just ignore because I don't think they will hold up under scrutiny. But I think holding up under scrutiny probably isn't as important for a surreal game because it seems like being able to pull the meaning out and pull the links out later in hindsight 
is also a valid way to put together a surreal story. Uh, what do you think? Well, to jump ahead uh, just a little bit uh, out of order, I think one mm-hmm. of the later suggestions answers this, which is uh, they recommend naivety that you should everything should seem natural. And so you shouldn't go in questioning. You sh- if you say holding up to scrutiny, naivety is basically saying don't scrutinize everything. Uh, well, let it happen and see what and see what emerges from it. And I guess when I say uh, like holding things up to scrutiny is is more about like, all right, the the players are trying to solve a mystery. Like they're trying to track down this person's dad or something, and they ask you a question about something. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with an example here. Like, let's say they found uh, an artifact in a closet that they just discovered in their house. And one of the players says, oh, uh, is there any writing on this? You know, my first inclination might be to say, ooh, I didn't really think of any writing, so I'm just going to tell him no. But, you know, maybe it would be interesting to throw some writing on there uh, that could lead them in a direction. So that's the kind of scrutiny that I'm thinking about here. Right. I think this is a useful opportunity to give some you know, table advice uh, in the you could, uh, micro case as well. Uh, one op- and so you could source the table by saying, uh, mm-hmm. yes, there is. And then turning to each person in, in the, uh, on the table and say, quick, first word that enters your brain. And you might even start by saying, rainbow, next word. And you just have them throw out words randomly, sort of like automatic writing. Uh, as uh, to, to fill in what is written on that object and then see if it goes somewhere or maybe it turns out that it is just meaningless gibberish and that's the meaningless gibberish was written onto uh, onto this uh, ancient artifact. Uh, but you could use, you, you, you have to be fearless in some extent to just throw out words that come to mind, whether, you know, rainbow, the color blue, um, you know, tastes like a burrito, whatever random things that are coming up because I might have had dinner too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and just allow everyone has to feel comfortable uh, interjecting and then waiting to see what emerges from it and taking what that uh, the, the possibility that things will just be gibberish as, as uh, part of the game. And if we if it turns out to be gibberish, just move along. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting to see how that would work. Uh, I have a feeling with my group that most of the stuff is going to be stuff I can't repeat on our podcast because we don't have an explicit <laughs> tag. Yes. Um, the way I thought you had meant uh, not holding up to scrutiny is, is scrutiny in terms of like laws of physics as we understand them or of biology. Yeah, let's talk about naivety. Yeah, if a character has a um, replaced in the body shop has replaced their head with um, a, a, a giant uh, cube that is constantly shifting shapes uh, like either a Rubik's cube or a limit configuration, depending upon the nature of your group. Um, that's very kind of very much in the spirit of the art of uh, Invisible Sun. Um, what not scrutinizing would mean is don't stop and ask, how does she eat? Nah. Yeah, that's, it, she just does. What, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't scrutinize it. If if you just are, are free associating, are you coming up with an, if, if they if the players bump into someone on the on the street and you say, oh, well, this person's walking around. They seem very normal, except they have a a golden cube for their head um, and speak psychically to you. Uh, don't let things get bogged down as they say, well, how do they see? How do they eat? How You know, 
just accept the weird and then uh, play with it as you as you move along. That's what I took from trying to avoid scrutinizing uh, the you know p- potential uh, free association. Yeah, and I think that's going to take a little bit of training in the first couple of sessions. Mm-hmm. And once we get used to no things, things may seem odd and different, but it, that's not the important part of it. And I think where it's really going to take some practice as a group, and it will, and every group is going to have to relearn this every time you change the composition of the group, is that you use the word important. And so some of what you're describing is going to be random free association without knowing what is important just yet. And having to figure out what is what here is ignorable and what is not ignorable um, in the game itself will be something that you'll kind of negotiate with the group as you move along. So you don't want to train them over time to say, oh, don't worry about how she eats. Her head has been replaced by a cube. Just go with it. And then say, oh, by the way, um, you're having a lot harder time with this encounter because you haven't considered how this is really a puzzle. And the puzzle is trying to figure out how she eats. (laughs) Yeah, don't fall into that trap. Oh, man. Here we're laying out the rules. This thing isn't important until I decide, uh, well, we're going to throw that idea out. Yeah, you have to you have to learn how to signal and communicate what is important and what is not important um, in in the free association and sometimes random inclusion of references. And that's hard, um, but it when it works, it, it sings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip over strangeness because I think we kind of uh, talked through that. But uh, another tool that they had was playing with space and time, and I thought this was a really interesting one. Uh, but basically, they they suggest like, hey. In order to give players the, the feel of a dreamlike state, jump through time and have them fill the details in after they got to where they were you know, going. Um, so instead of like skipping over you know, a travel sequence that's not going to be interesting, you know, which is something that most people typically do, what if instead you jump through time and they, the, the characters end up somewhere which may be unplanned for, uh, but then you have them go back and put together the sequence of events that got them to that place. Uh, it it puts the the whole scene in a in a very different sort of frame because you know the endpoint, so they're building up to that, and they're trying like you're going to be trying to weave everything to lead to you know where things are now, which I think would be kind of an interesting exercise that. Um, you know, I, I, I would probably use this once or twice sparingly here and there. Um, but I think it'd be an interesting way to just sort of toss up, you know, a session and, you know, source the table for more, uh, more input and, uh, storytelling. And this is similar to some of what we talked about before. Uh, one, we see this built into the mechanics of the system because of development mode intended to fill in gaps like this. Mm-hmm. Um, second, we see this in, in examples in the actual plays where uh, they tend to jump around from scene to scene more than you might expect, especially in a grid-based uh, RPG. Uh, and third, uh, this reminds me of a, a phrase I used early on in the podcast for lack of any formal or, or technical term um, that I, I find telling scenes that are dreamlike often involves local rationality in that when you're in scene one, scene one makes sense. And then you, you find yourself later in scene two and scene two makes sense. But if you think hard, you're not quite sure how one got to two. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
this is how I often remember uh, remember uh, dreams. I, I suspect I'm not unique in this respect. That uh, often I'll remember. Oh, I remember this happened in the dream. I remember this happened in the dream. I remember this happened in the dream. I could not tell you how A led to B, led to C, or what was in between. I only remember these scenes. Yeah. Oh man, that would be an interesting way to try and put that together. <laughs> I, I but but I, I like you. I, I recommend using this sparingly. But it's a useful benchmark. Yeah, uh, and it also it it does make sense because um, there could be a lot of downtime between sessions, uh, and if you want to fill that stuff in, development mode is there, or else you could use this at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, One last one that I want to touch on, like another suggestion they had was, hey, symbology is is important, and we've got the sooth deck. I don't really want to talk about that one, but uh, another one we have is you just know it. Uh, So another thing. Oh, wait, you were just talking about that one, weren't you? <laughs> sort of. Oh, no, I think this is a little different. It is a little different. Um, so basically, you just know it. So things things that happen in your dreams, they just make sense. Uh, you you can't really explain it, but you know that it's right. Um, one of the examples, I was, I was thinking this might have been what you were just talking about, because you know, you know, this scene is, this scene makes sense, and then this scene makes sense. You can't really tell... You can't explain why you go from scene one to scene two, but it makes sense that way. Another example would have been uh, you're like in your dream, you have, let's say you have a sibling in your dream and you don't have any siblings for real. But in that dream, you know, this person is your sibling. They've always been your sibling and they're always going to be your sibling. It just, you just know it. Yeah, it's a very boring example, but I remember... I remember remembering a dream. This is kind of odd inception. Um, I remember remembering a dream where what stood out was how normal it was, but I had bright blue shoes. Oh, sweet. I don't remember why that was important, but I remember that's what I remembered from that dream. What I thought of in terms of you just know it as advice uh, is that the game includes the mechanic for hidden knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so there's a mechanical hook in the system to explain how you just know certain things and you and a resource you can spend to declare that you just know things. And that has a surreal aspect to it in itself and is then built into the, the, the character's resources. Yeah, that, that does take care of that little bullet point, doesn't it? Very nicely, too. It just shows how relevant um, even Itris uh, B is, even though it's not using the same system, that the advice that they give for surreal role-playing is mechanized um, and uh, kind of made accessible within the mechanics of Invisible Sun, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of wraps up uh, the the big tips and the big takeaways that uh, they had. Um, there, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go back and talk about this other one, but um, that basically wraps up uh, all the big stuff that I pulled out of Itris B. Um, I do want to go back in and read through some of the setting stuff, uh, and the mechanics that they had in there were pretty interesting. It's much more, it feels much more like an indie RPG. Um, feels more along the lines of something like Fiasco, but there's a game master. Um, but uh, it, it looks interesting, and perhaps in a future episode, we're going to talk about uh, some of the setting because I see a lot of similarities there between uh, the city and um, Saturn. It's split up into different districts, and the surreal nature of those districts varies depending on where you are. Uh, so I think it might be an interesting exercise to dive into, you know, one of the districts and talk about it and 
how that would function in a surreal RPG. Uh, but that's for a future episode. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional Sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.